Welcome back to our podcast called The Research Behind Lift the Lid, where we talk to researchers previously funded by Australian Rotary Health about their research findings. I'm Jessica Cooper, and today on our 20th episode, we will talk to Associate Professor Sophie Havighurst from the University of Melbourne. Associate Professor Havighurst has been awarded a number of grants from Australian Rotary Health over the years. Her two most recent ones were from 2014 to 2016 for a project called Tuning Into Teens, the Prevention of Mental Health Difficulties in Adolescents Using an Emotion-Focused Parenting Program, and from 2015 to 2017 for a project called Tuning Into Toddlers, or TOTS, a randomised controlled trial of a program for parents of toddlers. Tuning Into Teens and Tuning Into Toddlers both fall under the Tuning Into Kids Parenting Program. Sophie leads her team in the development, research and dissemination of these programs. Prevention of emotional and behavioural problems in children using emotion-focused emotion coaching parenting interventions is where Sophie's research interests lie. In addition to this, Associate Professor Havighurst provides teaching and supervision to clinicians in child and adolescent mental health. So thank you very much, Sophie, for joining me on our podcast today. I understand it's been a bit difficult lately for people living in Melbourne with the recent lockdowns um, with COVID-19. So how are you going with all of that at the moment? Yes, pretty tricky times for families, pretty tricky times for parents. Um, You know, I think everyone uh, in the state of Victoria is really struggling with things. So it's certainly a time when parenting and parenting parenting interventions are incredibly valuable and necessary at this time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's quite quite a struggle. But yeah, hopefully there'll be some relief, yeah, pretty soon. Um, I know that, yeah, you received two Australian Rotary Health Mental Health uh, Research Grants quite close together. Um, I think they would have overlapped as well. Um, So that was for the two programs called Tuning Into Teens and Tuning Into Toddlers or, or TOTS. Um, can you tell us a bit about how these programs started and, and what they were for? Sure. Okay. Well, as you mentioned, the 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 body of work has come from um, the Tuning Into Kids program that Anne Harley and I first developed back in 1999. So we have been working on the development of this program, <clears throat> conducting research trials with it, and then disseminating it for for a long time now. Mm-hmm. And so both Tuning Into Toddlers and Tuning Into Teens are versions of the program that have um, been uh, been made more applicable for that particular age group for parents of toddlers and parents of teens. So after initially in Rotary funded um, a number of our trials with uh, the Tuning Into Kids program as well, um, we have gone on to go, okay, well, we've also got, there are specific needs around toddler time of of life and also around adolescence in terms of parenting and that does require slightly different uh slightly different um programs that address these these particular periods in life yeah yeah so the uh, and just to give you a little bit more detail about that the toddlers program we we wanted because we were the kids program has always gone from about age three or four upwards. The developmental needs are different in that in toddler years. Sorry about my pinging emails. I can't get to just stop. 
um, is that the toddler years are a time when there's much less language. And so parents need help to how do I respond to my child's emotions if they're not necessarily understanding things or their language skills are really limited. And in addition, that's a time when at that age, there's a, a greater need for parents to respond to the attachment needs of young children. So children are forming a secure base in their lives and they need to ensure that um, that parents are consistent and responsive to when they're emotionally distressed, especially angry, sad, whatever. So the needs in the toddler years tend to be about that consistency response early, helps a child internalize a sense of security. And that's part of the forming a strong, um, secure attachment base. So we also needed to look, focus more on that with the toddler years. And then with the teenage years, you know, everyone knows that these are times that are, are really quite different. And typically the, um, the needs are that, that more behavioural approaches to parenting where you try and have more control over children's behaviour are often much less effective because teens are just like, no, you are no longer having so much control about my emotions or what I do. So a huge difference happens in that parents need to shift to actually more working more alongside the young person, connecting with them a lot and um, having less control, but also engaging and talking with them in a way that actually is about um, kind of um, bringing the, the young person alongside them more rather than actually controlling what that kid will do at that age. And so those are quite different developmental needs in the toddlers and the teen years. And the result, you obviously need a different kind of approach. And many people who have had their kids grow up will know that parenting changes over the years. So we needed to be able to uh, address that with our program and then to get the evidence to see whether it was effective at those different ages. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a very important program. And, you know, I guess, yeah, a lot of parents, they, they do struggle like to, to know what to do, like, you know, across the different age groups. So, you know, having that guidance would be yeah very helpful for their child's mental health. Um, yeah. So, yeah, as you said, you needed that research um, behind the program to make sure that it was effective. Um, that, that first grant that you were awarded, that was for the Tuning Into Teens program, yeah? Um, yeah. Uh, well, Rotary is actually awarded us grants for Tuning Into Kids originally. So that foundation okay. was already established. And it's interesting because, yes, the first one came after that for, for the Teens grant. Um, and... You know, as we were trying to build the evidence to look at the teen, a teen version of the program, and then later on the toddlers grant. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I guess yeah, when when you first were awarded that grant for the teens program, um, what were some of the initial aims of the project? Okay, well, first for the teens, for teen, working with teens, it's very interesting. Teens are um, most parenting programs are not effective in this age bracket. Very interesting. Well, rather that the evidence is very hard to get about what the effects are. And so we knew that we wanted to, to try and work earlier in adolescence in order to try and prevent the onset of problems during middle adolescence and ideally later adolescence. And all of the uh, developmental literature is telling us that if you can work at the earlier end of adolescence, you're more likely to have be effective at that earlier stage rather than probably middle adolescence, especially around 14 or 15, as a time when the parent-child relationship is usually at its lowest. It's, it's, it's uh, characterised by the most levels of conflict between parents and teens. 
Um, and so it's a time what happens is you typically see that parenting and child relationships deteriorate if you look across the normal developmental progression. So we knew we needed to get in earlier. That was one of our goals. We knew, knew we needed to get feedback from parents about what the effects of the program were, but also from their adolescent, because adolescents are often the harshest critic of, um, yeah. of parents and their parenting. And that is tricky uh, because what often you see is that parents say, oh, yes, things are better, but adolescents say, no, they're not better, or I actually feel worse. And also what happens with adolescents is they tend to internalise. They tend to shut down or suppress more and share less with parents during their adolescence. So that makes it harder to find out what's going on. Is it real? Is something really beneficial for the young person? Or is it just the parent says, well, they're quiet and they're not talking about problems? But is that, is that really the case? So we wanted to measure from parents and adolescents. Um, and we're also aware that parents often think, okay, nothing, I can't do anything now. They're too old for me to actually have an effect. My parenting, there's no point doing a parenting program. So one of the things we were trying to do is trying to engage parents in the idea that learning about parenting and adolescent was a, a really important and effective Thing to do at that time often people say oh well that's something you do when your kids are younger but you know it's mostly their friends that are having the most influence over them now and in fact we find that's not the case parents are still the most important um, uh, sort of a predictor of the the parent-child relationship and the, the connection between parents and teens is still the biggest predictor of adolescent mental health problems even though parents think adolescents are much more affected by their peers, the relationship with the parent is still really central. Mm. So we wanted to say, how can we actually get parents to come to a program? Will they be interested in getting help? Or will they have just gone, oh, it's too late, you know, I can't do anything anymore. But we did find when we, we recruited through schools that we had to get a lot of material out there to schools. And we were, what, we were working what's called universally. This is something for everyone who has a team. And that's really important because it reduces the stigma or the idea that getting help for parenting is something that only parents do who are having difficulties. Mm -hmm. What we know is that many of the people who come along to programs often are trying to really improve their parenting and go further than just what they're already doing. They may not have problems, but they actually want to do a better job. So you get a range of people coming along to a program in the end. So it was great. We managed to get about 12% about, um, of the parents that received letters at their school actually came along to tuning into teens, which was wonderful. Yeah. And it was interesting also because it was at a time in um, Melbourne where there'd been some rather awful experiences happen. I think there'd been a murder in one area. And so we actually have a young person and it led to a, a greater number of parents wanting help because they were aware that the emotions their teens were experiencing were really strong, really difficult around this experience. So it's often when parents go, we need help. COVID is another example of when parents often say, we really need help. And, you know, many people do. And that's a very normal thing. So we were trying to promote this message that this is universally helpful for all parents to get some input at this time for teens. Yeah, uh, yeah, it sounds like a, a wonderful program and, yeah, it can be really helpful yeah, during those times of need like in particular. Um, mm -hmm. I, I guess as well, um, when you were doing the research, what kind of findings came out of this? 
Well, one of the things we found is that we had we used a randomised control design where we have half the people um, do the program and then the other half do the program after waiting for about 15 months or so. So we first of all measure what happens normally. So interestingly with our sample, we found that when we compared the two groups, at 12 months after the program, when we compared the parents who were in the intervention and those who were in the control group, we found that parents were reported by parents and adolescents as being less emotionally dismissive. So they were less avoidant of emotions with their teen compared to the control participants where there had been no change. And they were more empathic. They were more supportive of their young person's emotions. Mm -hmm. So that had changed. What we also found though, is that all parents in both groups, their children's behavior improved. And that was a very interesting finding. So rather than that they all deteriorated or that one group deteriorated <clears throat> maybe the controls deteriorated or the intervention families got work, uh, better. We actually found that there was a general progression that through grades into eight, grade into, um, into grade eight, uh, year eight, that, that, that kids were all getting doing better, which was very interesting and good to see. And that we didn't have any differences in mental health problems between the two groups because the, the rates of mental health problems were actually very low. Now, this might be because we were looking at uh, what we call a universal sample, which means we were taking going for everybody, and that we got a sample of uh, maybe we didn't pick up the families who were uh, having much more difficulty. Um, so there were a good number who were having difficulty, but we weren't going for a clinical sample of families where the, the difficulties are so large that they were having to come to mental health services. Mm -hmm. So that might be one of the reasons we saw that. But what we do know is that when parents are uh, less emotionally dismissive and more able to support and coach and guide their teen in talking about emotions, working through emotions, that that has been found to predict better outcomes longer term. Mm -hmm. So what we would love to be able to do, of course, is to follow them up, you know, six years later and go, well, what's happening now? Mm -hmm. um, because that's often through, especially because adolescence get, is at the, the peak of difficulty, usually around age 15, so around grade nine. Um, we were trying to prevent problems. Now, ideally, you'd look long term, and that's often beyond the... Um, the ability of researchers to do that over time, to keep hold of a sample over time and to have the money to do that over long periods of time. But that's what we hope will happen. So that was, it was really good outcomes. We also found that we got 92% um, of parents who came when the intervention came to the whole intervention, like four out of the six sessions they attended, which is uh, what we talk about as completion. Um, which is wonderful. So we thought people would just go, oh, this is all rubbish or no, this is no good. But they were actually really engaged. So the feedback from parents was, this is so helpful. I feel like it helps me to connect with my young person. A lot of what we do in the teens program is say, you know, with teens, you've actually got to connect with them on a bit more on their terms. You know, they do have new needs and you've got to find shared time, which you enjoy, but they also want to um, share with you. And so we try and build connection because when you have connection, young people are much more likely when they're connected to you to talk about what's going on emotionally for themselves. Mm. You can't just go in there and go, okay, now I'm ready to talk because teens want to do it on their terms in their time. 
So that's quite a shift. And so parents found that very helpful to realize that they had to find ways of connecting with the young person to then have the opportunity of helping the young person work through teen, you know, problems with their friends or problems with school, problems with anxiety, getting in trouble with teachers. Kids were more likely to talk with their parent when they had that more connected time with their parent rather than being pinned down and this is the time you'll talk to me because that often led to teens, you know, not wanting to connect with parents if they were forced to or the parent had control over that process. So that was really interesting. Mm. It mm. sounds like it, yeah, it was, it's quite a successful program. And I, I guess if, if parents do want to access something like this, um, where can they go? Well, just about everywhere. They're now, since since the, the research is finished, we've had huge dissemination of tuning into teens. Um, like across the tuning into kids and tuning into teens, I think we've got about 8,500 professionals in Australia who are now trained to deliver the program. And just as I was thinking about coming into this, um, to talking with you today, I was even going back to um, the report that Headspace has recently released. So Headspace is a national organisation for working with youth mental health. And they've been um, piloting in a number of their set, their centres using tuning into teens for parents and adolescents as a way of getting in early and preventing. And they've had fantastic outcomes in their evaluation of tuning into teens that we've just had back recently from it being offered at Headspace. Yeah. So... It's, which is wonderful. And that's one of the amazing things that happens when you do a piece of research that then it allows you to say, well, this is the effects of this um, program. Then services will say, okay, well, we can now fund our workers to learn the program and use it. So one of the wonderful things about research is it should be evidence is first of all determined and then dissemination, the program goes out to the community. It's not for us to deliver it, it's about us training then professionals to use the program to offer it in their communities. So um, I know especially, I mean, we've, we initially found that we were training many people in Victoria. Now we're having huge numbers of people in New South Wales, uh, Queensland, Western Australia, South Australia, um, Tasmania. Um, I have to say one of the awful but amazing things about COVID is that we had to shift all of our training online. Mm. So we are now having trainings where we usually have, um, you know, we're offering tuning into teens trainings and tuning into kids trainings online. Professionals join the training from wherever they are without having the added costs of travel uh, or the convenience, and so they can do it in their own home or with a workplace, wherever they are. So we are now getting huge numbers of professionals coming from all over Australia, New Zealand. Um, we've had every training. We have people coming from from Asia, from the United States. But like you know, the last two teams training, I think there was five New Zealanders in the training. So people are coming from everywhere now to learn, the professionals are coming to learn online to then take back into their communities. And we're getting feedback coming in all the time that people are now delivering tuning into teens online to parents during this time. So they're offering the program, you know, just like you know, we can talk over Zoom, they're delivering it over Zoom and with really positive feedback um, from about the program. We actually find it's not much different than face-to-face -face group delivery or one-to-one -one delivery of the program because People really want to, to get help often right now. It's a very strong motivation. But also, um, they often feel freer to speak when they're sitting in their own home learning a program and then taking it back to their, their teen and, and using it. 
So that's yeah. been a wonderful part of what leads follows from research to dissemination. And even now, we're still able to disseminate and get this out to workers in the community. Yeah, well, that's exactly what we love to see from these um, research projects that Australian Rotary Health funds, like, you know, seeing it get out there and helping real people and, you know, going right across Australia. That's, that's such an amazing result. So, yeah, that's... It, it, is, it is amazing. And, yeah. you know, it's um, um, very few... Uh, there's a, only... A, I think we're doing some evaluation around the federal, um, the Commonwealth funding of parenting programs, of research on parenting programs. It's actually very, very little. So it's interesting, it's often philanthropic organisations like Rotary that are funding these kind of um, research projects. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, parenting is often not prioritised as something on the research agenda that's, that's really highly valued as being beneficial for the community. So it's often, you know, it comes through uh, in philanthropic organisations. And, and so that's why I think what Rotary have been able to do is actually fund quite a lot of research on parenting interventions, which is amazing. As, as, a, as researchers yeah yeah we, we definitely go for those programs that that can have those you know real real world effects you know helping real people and yeah being able to be disseminated out there so yeah that's that's really great to see I guess yeah going on to your other program as well um tuning into toddlers um yep. what kind of results did you find from that grant oh my goodness so this is really this has been one of the more exciting things and look if you get like if, if you can deliver parenting programs earlier they probably have more of an effect not necessarily better but the effects are you know going to radiate for a longer period and also when children are younger they shift and change quicker because they're still quite um, they're still developing they aren't set in their personality and we often talk about if you really want to get a good intervention happening, it's probably going to be before age eight. That's going to have some of the best effects. Um, so with our toddlers program, we had, it was very interesting. So our toddlers program, we, we had 300 families who um, half were uh, in the, in the tuning to toddlers and half had to wait for 15 months until the waiting period was over before they got their intervention to allow us to compare the two groups. And as I said, the focus in the toddler program is about how can you support the toddler's emotions without always using a lot of language. So it might be, you know, reflecting back to a toddler, oh, sad. So using a simple word, but then your facial expression communicating sad. Or, oh, so cross and angry. Or how frustrating. So simple language with your verbal, your nonverbal communication as well. And um, that toddlers are actually, they're right on the beginning of that language development phase. So using simple language, they very quickly pick up language around emotions. Really interesting. They're really receptive because emotions will, attention to emotions help kids survive. They're what we're wired to do to pay attention to emotions, even before language, because it tells us something safe, dangerous, if we need to run, if we need to fight. So kids are very well wired to be attuned to emotions. So when parents talk about emotions, they pick it up easily. So, so our program does a lot of the nonverbal, still using this idea of emotion coaching, that you want, to, you want to notice your toddler's emotions, you want to connect with them, get down to their level, slow yourself down, manage your own reactions at those times. 
even more quiet, breathing slowly. And then to very simply use a word like, oh, sad or oh, frustrated. Oh, it's hard. And then staying with your toddler to help them to calm before you start talking about what to do next. So toddlers, young kids need the connection with a parent to calm their emotions before they're ready to go on. And a lot of the time, if you can just help them to reduce their emotion by being with them and connecting and not questions, not lots of information, so helping parents stop talking at those times and just connecting with their kid, often holding them or being close, calming, and then communicating empathy. It's difficult, oh, frustrating, but communicating empathy with your nonverbal and verbal language way of communicating. That when the kid's calmer, the kid will often then, there's not a problem anymore. They can actually fix the puzzle. They can, they can, they're, they're calmer. They can go and talk to their sister again. You know, so helping them to calm often allows them then to move on without you having to always solve problems. But sometimes you also need help in solving problems as well. We also look quite a bit at separation, how they manage separations around childcare um, and separations from a parent, because that is a time that often creates a lot of emotion for toddlers. And that's often where parents really struggle. And then also reunion when they come together. So how to emotionally support a child when you come back together, when they might be cross with you, they might ignore you, uh, you might need to talk that through. So that's what the Toddlers Program does. So I'm just giving you a bit of a picture because then what we saw in the intervention is that parents, the, the reports from our parents was that they were significantly better at um, emotion coaching. They were much more empathic. Uh, they had fewer of their own emotional regulation problems, the parents. So one of the things we do a lot of is we help parents to stop, wait, slow down before they respond and to look after yourself emotionally. The better you are, the better space you are in emotionally, the more likely you can talk with your um, toddler and help your toddler. But you've got to also regulate and manage your own emotions. So a big chunk of the program also helps parents to do this because kids also watch and listen and learn from watching what parents do. So we also found parents reported that they were better at managing their emotions. We found that um, they reported more that their toddlers were more socially competent and that they had fewer behaviour problems with their toddlers compared to the control families. Now, what was really exciting is that we also collected data from hair samples. So we took little cuts from toddlers and from parents which is not always easy because some toddlers don't have any hair. So there was quite a few that we didn't get samples and some parents don't have hair as well. But we took a sample of hair and we looked at the first one centimetre of hair from the scalp. And we, we, what, what we did is we sent this off to a laboratory and we had that tested for cortisol, stress cortisol. And you can see the levels of stress in the past one month by looking at the first centimetre of hair. And what we found is that toddlers in the, whose parents did the tuning into toddlers program, those toddlers had significantly lower cortisol stress than those in the control group. So this is one of the first kind of, um, well, there's a, a couple of other studies around, but one of the first studies to show that par a parenting intervention actually leads to lower cortisol stress in a child. And it ne was nearly significant in the parent as well. So that has... If you've got lower cortisol stress, you've got a brain developing 
differently, a less stressed child. Like it's physiologically a less stressed child. That was so exciting for us to hear, to find that out. You know, and this is what, you can never know that unless you do the research. And it's often expensive to do this, to find these things out. And most of that grant went to actually funding the stress cortisol testing in order to find this out, which was was wonderful to be able to do that. So um, that's been really important. Now, in terms of, um, where to from here with the Tuning Into Toddlers program. We have another trial. There's another trial happening in Norway now of Tuning Into Toddlers in a clinical setting. Um, and we're, we're actually only just releasing the program um, now because it takes quite a long time to then write up a whole new manual and get and So we've been doing that in a bit of field testing with that right now. But in the next in the next year, providing COVID is not too overwhelming for us all, we will start training professionals in the toddlers program as well. Yeah, well, that that's so interesting, especially measuring the cortisol. You don't you know, often hear about that. That's yeah, fantastic. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, yeah, that's so great to hear. And, and I know that our Rotarians who, they, they give us a lot of the donations that fund this research and they're always out on the ground fundraising, you know, for important research like this. So I'm sure that they'd love to hear these results today. And I, I guess as well, um, could you maybe talk about a bit about the impact of that fundraising and, and donation for, for your project in particular or why it's important to continue funding mental health research? Oh, look, it's it's so hard to get funding to evaluate interventions. Very few interventions are evaluated, evaluated properly, and then disseminated. And so we tend to get a lot of things that are delivered in the community in a very ad hoc way. They're not necessarily tested. So what we've got here, and, and, and Australia is actually quite good on doing things on fairly limited resources, but we do have a number of good programs in Australia that have had gone through evidence and testing of evidence that through this research process that are then disseminated, which is, is wonderful to see that. But I think, you know, I've probably been able to give you a bit of an idea that what happens is that once you have the evidence, once you, once you have the evidence and you publish that evidence, services and governments will allocate resources to have their professionals train and use a program. And then you start getting delivery to not just, you know, the 300 that we have in a research trial, but to thousands and thousands of families. And that's the next thing. So the research leads to this huge um, dissemination process where many, many families get the intervention way beyond just the research. So I think that's one of the things that, Um, I hope that Rotarians can keep in mind is that the flow on effect from what they fund is, you know, uh, two or three hundred thousand dollars of funding a research trial over a number of years leads to a huge wave of of this program, of a program going out to the community and then being used. So it's a relatively small amount of money, although very hard won and hard um, earned and, and, um, and raised. But the flow-on effects are phenomenal to the number of families who are affected. I'm constantly receiving feedback from professionals saying, we've just run our 12th program with, of tuning into teens. The, the feedback is amazing. I, don't, I just wanted to let you know our parents are constantly saying that. Or in New South Wales where they're delivering the kids and teens to, um, to families where children are about to be removed. And they're now into the hundreds of families who are receiving the programs. The intervention is having an effect of keeping families together. 
This is the outcome of having done the research to then allow professionals to use a program. And I just think that's amazing. And yeah, I'm absolutely, yeah, oh, that, that's so great to hear. And, and I thank you so much for joining me on, on the podcast today and talking about your research. You know, it's obviously had some, yeah, great outcomes. And yeah, it'd be great to see how, how much further it stretches and, and grows. So yeah, that, that's amazing. Well, I thank Rotary and all the Rotarians who have contributed to this and to enabling us to be able to conduct this research. It's, it's wonderful from our end, so thank you. Yeah, no worries. Thanks again. So that was the 20th episode of our podcast called The Research Behind Lift the Lid. It's always so inspiring to hear what researchers in Australia are doing to make a difference to mental health and how they are helping us on our mission to lift the lid on mental illness. If you can, please support important mental health research like Sophie's by donating on the Australian Rotary Health website. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.